Hey, welcome back to another episode of Political Climate. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Canary Media, a newsroom dedicated to telling the urgent story of fighting climate change with clean energy. This is a transformation that is changing how we live, travel, work, eat, and do pretty much everything else. It's as exciting as it is overwhelming, so we are here to help you make sense of it all. We cover the technological, economic, policy, and social justice issues driving the global response to the climate crises. Plus, we just got a brand new website. You can check it out now at canarymedia.com and subscribe to get our daily newsletter right in your inbox. That is canarymedia.com. See you there. My own priority is that this is going to be our single biggest opportunity to start getting climate right at a time when it's in our face every day. Hello and welcome to Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world. Presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Welcome back to another episode. With so much happening in D.C., we are thrilled to be joined today by Senator Martin Heinrich of New Mexico, who has for many years been an environmental advocate in Congress and has some significant climate and energy priorities, including sponsoring bills to further electrification, a civilian climate core, and clean energy and hydrogen development. Heinrich serves on the Senate Energy and Natural Resources, Armed Services, Intelligence, and Joint Economic Committees. He's the ranking member on the Subcommittee on Energy and the Subcommittee on Emerging Threats and Capabilities. The senator has specifically been leading an effort that would make it more affordable and accessible to electrify homes, which we know is a huge part of achieving the emissions reductions we need, with an estimated 42% of energy-related emissions coming from decisions made in and around the home, according to Rewiring America. Before we turn to that conversation with the senator, which you, Brandon, and Shane led using your best journalistic skills, which is fantastic, uh, I wanted to get your guys' thoughts on a couple of items in the news. Brandon, first to you, President Biden toured the country in recent days calling out the threat we face from climate change. What was your read on that? Why was he doing it? Did those points land, do you think? Do you have thoughts on President Biden elevating this issue at this time? Yes, It's so important, Julia. Uh, He did a couple of things that I think we should take a few lessons from. Number one, elections matter. Again, Joe Biden said during his swing over those two days that we have to think big on climate. Thinking small is a prescription for disaster. He called climate a blinking code red for our nation. If you contrast that about a year ago to that day, Trump was in Sacramento and questioned the science. He said, the scientists don't really know and it'll get cooler. Believe me, you just watch. So you can't get a bigger contrast on climate between two individuals uh, than that. And so these elections really do matter. Number two, the fact that he um, has leaned in so hard on, on this swing, uh, he went to California toward wildfire uh, damage. Uh, went to Idaho, had a roundtable, went to the National Renewable Energy Lab in Colorado. Right now, climate change policies are being debated very intensely on Capitol Hill. And for him to spend two days and use that kind of language uh, demonstrates the priority this is you know, for, for President Biden at a very key time. 
So agreed. And, you know, one of the stops he made, which is another item in the news, is California. Uh, he was there helping Governor Newsom campaign as part of also calling attention to climate change and climate issues. We are now recording um, this intro after the results came in. And Governor Newsom did indeed hold on to his his seat. Uh, he, he maintains his role as governor and he won by a real landslide, which is not totally surprising just given, you know, how big a presence Democrats have in the state of California. But these are weird political days. Um, so what do you think of that, Brandon? Were you surprised at all? Are you relieved? What's your thoughts on Newsom's win? A thousand percent relieved. California is the, is the world's fifth largest economy and the leader on climate change policy. So we can't go backwards. California needs to continue to lead. If we had lost Governor Newsom and elected somebody like Larry Elder to run this uh, economy, it would have been a major setback for climate. So this is a big win for the climate community. But number two, I think it illustrates some of the things we talked about in the last show, Julia, about you know the structural part of our democracy. I mean, what a stupid process, the recall. We spent $270 million in this state on that election for him to win by 30 points. I mean, can you think of better uses of $270 million? I mean, we have to stop this. It's insanity. Yeah. Shane, you're another fellow Californian. Uh, any quick thoughts on on the uh, recall or, or what it means politically? I mean, there would have been, had Newsom lost, some some ramifications down the line for even D.C. politics. Any any quick reflections here? Yeah, I didn't watch it too closely, honestly. I mean, at no point did I really think a Republican was going to win California. If you just look at the registration numbers alone, the turnout model would have to be insane uh, for a Republican to take the governor's seat. There was a time a couple of weeks ago where the polling was like 50-50, um, and that was a little surprising to me. But if I'm being perfectly honest, I had completely forgotten the election was yesterday until my wife told me in the morning because I didn't. I viewed it as a nothing burger. There was no scenario where I believed Republican was going to win statewide in California. This is not like the Gray Davis recall, where there was obviously the huge energy crisis. California was closer to a 50-50 state. It wasn't a 50-50 state, but it was closer. And Arnold Schwarzenegger was you know, widely popular. This is something completely different. And my takeaway is, you know, waste of money maybe, but, but a nothing burger. Julia, one other comment I want to make on it is I think, you know, we could be watching the views of this sort of uh, you, what you may call, remember the silent majority that Nixon claimed. I think there are a lot of people out there that are abhorred by uh, some of the Republican approach to science uh, on the vaccine and potentially climate. And I think, you know, when Newsom really leaned in on the pro-vaccine uh, messaging, California realized that they might elect an anti-vaxxer to run the state. Uh, it really turbocharged uh, his campaign effort. So I wonder if that's something that we'll see play out more broadly in the midterm elections. Mm, let's put a pin in that one, because I think, yeah, it's a great point to what extent science is landing and that the electorate is is resonating and connecting with that issue. And as you say, clearly it did in California. Well, that's California. I do want to get your thoughts, Shane, before we turn to the interview with Senator Heinrich on what's happening on the House side. I know we're going to hear in a moment about the senator's views on, on things moving in the Senate and his own policies he's introduced. But we have to note that certain key House committees have been marking up legislation on the big budget reconciliation bill. So can you give us a quick run through of what you're seeing, starting with the House Ways and Means Committee? Yeah, so the, the House is going to mark up their legislation that's going to total, uh, you know, either at or close to that $3.5 trillion number. As you mentioned, there's a separate discussion with the, the Senate we're going to have with, with Senator Heinrich in a moment. But for the House purpose, Basically, each committee is going to go through and meet their reconciliation instruction. So Ways and Means is marking up right now. Energy and Commerce is marking up right now. Those are the provisions we'd really talk about, you know, mostly on this show. 
Um, there's a lot in there, right? There's investment tax credits and production tax credits for um, commercial scale technologies, for residential decarbonization technologies. Um, some of those are being made direct pay because tax equity markets are drying up. Unfortunately, some of those are not being made direct pay, which is going to make it really difficult for middle and low income households to take advantage of the same benefits as everyone else. But at the end of the day, um, the House bills are going to go back to the Budget Committee. And then before going on to the floor in any way, shape or form, they're going to go to the Rules Committee. Now, in a regular process, what would probably happen is that they would go to the floor, they'd vote on their bill, the Senate would vote on theirs, and then they'd conference. But what we're told here is that it looks like the House is going to go through their process. They're going to send the bill to the Rules Committee to prepare it for the floor. And at that point, I think they're going to hold it for a while. They're going to pre-conference it with the Senate. The Senate is not doing public markups like the House is. They're packaging their bill you know, within their committees, but behind closed doors. And I don't mean to say that in a nefarious way. I just mean they're not you know, gaveling in and, and going through the whole dog and pony show. And so what will ultimately happen is Senate negotiators and House negotiators will compare the versions of the bill. They'll find an acceptable outcome for both sides so that they each have to vote on the bill you know, only one time rather than House voting on one, Senate voting on one, negotiating and trying again. Uh, it's going to be a long process. It's not going to be over by the end of September, as many have been led to believe. But I think the House right now wants to show its work. They want to show their members that, that they've been heard with the proposals they put forward. Uh, they want to show that they're going through the process that they're intended to go through under budget reconciliation. And I think they want to see you know, what provisions are most popular, what are less popular, and, and how much support they can get for expanding the size of this bill to the $3.5 trillion number that was um, that was in the budget resolution compared to the Senate, which, depending on which press reports you believe, might get significantly smaller than that. So as we sit today, what are some of the key elements that are still moving forward? I know we talked last time about the Clean Electricity Performance Program. There are a bunch of other things for electric vehicles, transmission, tax credits for clean energy. Is all of that still in? Are there certain policies you'd call out as um, being more than you anticipated making it forward? Or, or did things get cut? What about on the actual substance? Yeah, not a whole lot got cut. So I think what'll be interesting, and, and I don't know the answer to this, and I don't think anyone does, honestly, is that remember President Biden a while back said there'd be no double dipping. And in the House, they said, well, there isn't sufficient investment in the bipartisan bill for things like electric school buses or EV charging infrastructure, their bill includes some of those things. And so one big question is, is that a starting point for negotiations whereby those will get stripped out by the Senate because that would violate the pledge to not double dip? Or are they just going to you know, start from scratch, view this as a new product and negotiate what they think the best outcome is? The House bill is almost as inclusive as we're going to see. There could be provisions tweaked like the direct pay elements, Julia, that we've talked about. Um, there could be increases in the uh, amount of funding or decreases in the number of years, maybe, that certain tax credits are extended to try to make the cost fit with what the Senate's doing. But I would say we should view the House approach as very inclusive, and it's going to get smaller, not bigger, as we move forward. Interesting. What's your gut read on that CEPP, that sort of version of a national clean energy standard that's being advanced? Is Does that have legs? I think we saw some comments from Senator Schumer recently that he, well, he was sort of moderating his stance on that, I think, and kind of pulling back on the viability of it. Um, so I'm just wondering what your read is. Yeah, I mean, it's tough because there's two primary obstacles and one of them has nothing to do with politics, right? One of them is just, can that program make it through the quote unquote birdbath? Meaning, is it compliant with the reconciliation rules? It's really hard to tell. Um, negotiators on both sides of the, of the Capitol have worked very hard to try to write a program 
that can do the things that it's supposed to do by decarbonizing the power sector, but also comply with the rules of reconciliation. But that is, you know, the parliamentarian is obviously going to going to rule on that. And that's something that, you know, if anyone tells you they know, they're just not being honest with you. So that's a non-political hurdle. That's just a, a sort of administrative or procedural issue. Separately, if Senator Manchin truly, you know, refuses to support it, then it can't move forward because not only is he the chairman of the Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, the committee that is responsible for writing this program ultimately and putting it in the reconciliation package, but he's also one of 50, just like every other senator is one of 50, meaning that if he can't vote for it, it cannot pass. Uh, if he doesn't put it in his bill, it cannot pass. So I'm not ready to say that it's not going to happen, um, even though you know Senator Manchin has implied that. But I do think there's more resistance than we've been led to believe you know, for the past several weeks. And I certainly wouldn't call it a given. Got it. So some other things that I know are moving. Uh, we talked about the CEPP, this uh, performance program. There's also the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund, Appliance and Building Efficiency Rebates, Green Federal Procurement, Electric Vehicle Incentives, Electric Transmission Incentives, DOE Loan and Grant Programs, and the list goes on and on. And we'll link to some articles that have more on the details. One last thought from you, Brandon. As you see all this stuff moving, was there anything that you're keying in on policy-wise or, or politically uh, to figure out where this is all going to go at the end of the day? I'm just hoping that we can get as much of the Build Back Better plan in. This is a key moment for climate. You know, Senator Heinrich mentioned, I mean, this is an opportunity uh, for certain senators to build their legacy. This is a big opportunity for the Democratic Party to deliver on the issues that voters sent them to Washington to deliver on uh, for these next couple of years. So I hope we can get it across the line. Um, Shane and I have been talking recently about how in the past, when you have big pieces of legislation, they're often claimed to be dead many times before they can get passed. Uh, so it's going to be quite a roller coaster over these next several weeks uh, and just hopefully we can get it across the finish line. Well, we'll leave it there on our introductory segment and turn now to your conversation that you both had with Senator Heinrich of New Mexico. Senator. Morning. Welcome back to Political Climate. Yeah, it's a, I'm glad to see you guys have this up and running again. Well, the first time we had you on, uh, if you remember, we, we were able to sneak Shane into the DSCC. <laughs> it was like going in the lion's den. <laughs> biggest security breach in the DSCC. <laughs> Exactly. No, I hope I didn't do it too much, Shane. But that was uh, that was such a good time, and I'm I'm glad. You know, I think it's been three years. Wow, that's remarkable. Well, a lot has changed, which we should get into in those three years. Lots happened, huh? Absolutely. Should we dive right into that to some of the reconciliation funds? So, Senator, when we first met um, a few years ago, obviously there was a lot of appetite, a lot of interest in clean energy and climate policy. I know you've always been a leader in that space, but there really just wasn't a lot happening. Um, there was a lot of bills being introduced, you know, some hearings, um, not really even because Republicans controlled most of the gavels or all the gavels. But um, now there almost seems like there's too much to keep up with in, in, in a good way. And for, you know, our listeners who don't know this, um, in, in D.C., a lot of senators and members are just bandwidth constrained. There's so many priorities. There's so many important things. And Senator Heinrich seems to show up whenever something important's happening and give it his time and his effort and, and, and just, you know, work hard to get some of these critical policies across the finish line. So I know all of us who, who work in this space appreciate that and, and sort of diving into the reconciliation piece now. Um, this, the House bill, you know, as you know, is, is moving through the process. They were working early into the morning last night. Um, as I understand it, Senator, and please correct me, but in the Senate, a lot of this work is going to be done 
by the senators, um, you know, and they're going to go through the process, but not in the formal hearing sort of markup structure. A lot of these provisions have been uh, subject of hearings or markups in the past. Uh, some of the bigger ticket items, as we all know, is the Clean Energy Performance Program. For our listeners, that's sort of a, a budget-friendly version of a clean energy standard, whereby I think it's going to be load-serving entities are going to be paid for clean electrons they deliver to end-use customers, and they're going to be expected to increase their portfolio by 4% annually um, and would be penalized uh, at a certain level. Is that? Yeah, that's, that, that sounds very consistent with what I'm uh, looking at coming out of the house and with what we had tried to structure to be friendly to the reconciliation process and address the kinds of issues that typically might come up with the parliamentarian. And uh, certainly Tina Smith and Ben Ray Lujan and others deserve enormous credit for sort of structuring that in a way that is consistent with this process. And, you know, that that's really the foundation of how we clean up the entire electricity sector. Senator, uh, we're such big fans of yours. Again, thanks for all the all the leadership. How does this all come together? What, what What's Joe Manchin going to do? How's this going to play out in the House? Yeah. Everybody's so interested in what you have to say about that. Well, that, I think the House is making great progress. And what I've seen emerge so far from energy and commerce is uh, very encouraging and has a lot of the building blocks, even if the overall price tag for some of them may differ from what uh, we were hoping for or what the Senate does. It's mostly there. And it's it's just, as Shane said, it's huge progress, right? Like after many years of sort of stalling out, we have a lot of opportunities to move the needle. In the Senate, it really will come down to what does Joe Manchin want his legacy to be? This is an enormous opportunity at this moment in time. He could choose to be seen as the pragmatic leader who, who guided our country through the biggest economic transition since the Industrial Revolution. Or it could be a, a lost opportunity, and that, that's really his choice to make. I, I think the rest of our caucus is, is just really broadly united around many of these provisions which I view as an enormous economic opportunity and a necessary opportunity, especially from states like mine, which have historically produced much of the fossil energy and have communities that I refer to as energy veterans because they're the people who've been keeping the lights on for the last hundred years that are going to need new opportunities and new economic growth if we're going to manage this transition. It's interesting that you frame that in sort of the legacy framework because we just commemorated 9-11 uh, this week. And you think about that moment in time, if President Bush had stood up and said, we're going to unite the country around getting off Middle East oil and begin that transformation to address climate change, instead of you know investing $6 trillion in the war on terror, we might have been able to jumpstart all of this 20 years ago and had real national security, job creation, and climate benefits. So this is, I think you're right, it's a great moment, a historic opportunity right now, and we really hope you all can get it done in the Senate. Well, and time is an opportunity cost, right? Like at, at any moment when you have the opportunity, I think it's oftentimes lost on us how acting a few years earlier or a few years late can really change trajectory over time. When I first showed up to Washington, D.C. as a brand new member of Congress, 
the recovery plan was happening, right? And while we did not get a cap and trade bill that year, I completely underestimated the power of what we did in the Recovery Act. It, it created this entire industry, the incentives that were built in at that time, and that has rippled through our, our entire economy. So, you know, what's the old saying, the best time to plant a tree was yesterday and the second best time is today. Senator, the, as we look at, you know, sort of all the programs and you're leading on some of these, we're, we're looking at end use electrification, right? So that we can make use of that clean energy that's being produced, looking at getting more EV charging infrastructure out there, making electric vehicles uh, accessible uh, to all income levels by having, uh, at least in the, in the house version, a secondhand EV tax credit, along with uh, boosting what is currently known as the 30D electric vehicle tax credit. There's um, the accelerator program, which I guess they're calling the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund. Transmission, uh, both you know on the funding side and on the, the uh, tax credit side. Hydrogen uh, PTC, which I know you've led on as well, without running through you know 10 million programs. When we look at what this package is going to look like, and I realize it's early, if the Senate needs to shrink the size of the package from a dollar perspective, do you envision that coming from having fewer programs or having you know fewer years on these programs, uh, you know I'm, I'm looking at the tax titles and wondering: Do you extend a program seven years instead of ten, or do you just entirely ignore one program to make sure you can fully fund another? And do you have a sense of how that process will work if the overall price tag comes down? Well, I think that it's also important to take a step back and, and realize that there are opportunities for for very pragmatic revenue raisers too in the midst of all this that can affect that overall price tag. So there are a number of different dials and uh, my own priority is that this is gonna be our single biggest opportunity to start getting climate right at a time when it's in our face every day. When I was home last week, I went and, and toured the, the Rio Grande with the, the crew who does wildlife management at the Pueblo of Santa Ana. And you're seeing cottonwood trees, you're seeing willows that actually have their roots in the water, still dying because they can't take up water fast enough. It's not supposed to be this hot in September in New Mexico. And so we're just seeing these changes where you can't see the mountains, not because our forests are burning this year, we actually got rain this year, but because California's forests are burning and Oregon and, and Washington and Arizona. So I have never seen felt more urgency around this than I do today. And I think we need to make sure that as part of this big reconciliation package, that we also keep a view that climate needs to be core to this budget reconciliation process. And it should be the, the last place that we're, we're compromising, not the first place. Senator, we're going to need batteries for so many different things. Um, we'll, we'll need them in the home. We'll need them in our electric vehicles. We'll need them for grid storage. Uh, so there's you know incredible opportunities for you know lithium-ion energy batteries and then power batteries that are more you know high power, short duration. Um, I'd add iron air to that uh, to that mix. Absolutely, yeah. For yes, so. Do your colleagues in the Senate understand the importance of developing this supply chain to have domestic manufacturing of batteries, critical minerals here? Because if, if we don't, we're going to be so dependent on China. I'm just surprised that even on the Republican side, uh, you know, just from the national security, you know, view on this, 
that there's not more people that understand the risks that we have and the economic and job creation opportunities that we have for that. I mean, we've seen some some talk about semiconductors. You guys have done a great job with you know 50 billion uh, for that because people realize the strategic importance of that. What do you think on batteries? How, what are what are you talking about with your with your colleagues, and do they understand how important this is? I think broadly, most people don't understand how important batteries are, but there are a number of different ways that we can shore that up. One is looking at chemistries that are you know based on on more common, easier to source uh, chemistries, and and that's why some of the news around uh, iron air really has me excited. Not only because Potentially, we're seeing long duration storage, which is a game changer, but also because iron is a really common mineral that's that's easy to source in the United States. We can also be working with allies like Australia to offset the role that that currently China plays in, in the supply chain market. So I think there's a lot we can do there. Obviously, if we're going to build this entire industry, we should start with a, a storage tax credit. Well, and hear mouth to God's ears. It looks like we might we might get one here in the next uh, in the next couple months. How do you view and and, and forgive me because I should know this because uh, New Mexico I imagine has an incredible amount of rooftop potential. But how do you view the role of residential? I know you view the role of residential electrification, which is fantastic. How do you view the role of residential generation behind the meter storage in the larger picture when you know considered alongside obviously utility scale generation and and, and long duration energy storage. I think they're complementary. I don't really see them as competing so much because I, I, I think they speak to different opportunities and different values. I put rooftop solar on my house in, I think it was 2004. And one of the things that I valued at the time was just, you know, independence. But I, I think in a state like New Mexico, where we really can be, we, we can be the source for much of the clean energy for places uh, that may have very different space constraints. And so I see utility solar as being how we source clean electrons to load centers in places outside of our state, as well as wind for the same reasons. And then rooftop solar as a way to become more independent, to have the sort of resilience that people will really think a lot more about today than they used to. And the thing I love about rooftop solar is it drives a lot of local economic activity and a lot of installer jobs that, that are really valuable in particularly the urban parts of New Mexico. And then if you look at the wind and where we're doing that, which is largely once again an export play because we generate a lot more power than we consume in New Mexico. Those jobs are going almost exclusively to small rural communities and building economic capacity in places that haven't seen this scale of investment in, you know, probably since the railroad came to town in many of these towns. On that note, um, in order to unlock all that potential, obviously we need a far more robust transmission system that allows New Mexico to export that clean power to, to more um, hungry demand centers. You've talked about this for as long as I can remember. Um, when we look at the investments in the, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, along with the proposed transmission ITC, is that enough? Do you think that'll, that'll help unlock these resources? I'm really excited about the changes in transmission. If we can land the budget reconciliation bill and have investments from budget reconciliation, investments from uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, plus what we did on siting, 
and an investment tax credit, you add all of those things together and suddenly you have a very different landscape on transmission. And I think what has gone largely unnoticed in all of this is that we were able to put federal backstop authority back into the law through the bipartisan infrastructure package. So as long as that gets signed, uh, we're going to get back to the intent of what was in the Energy Act of 2005, where you can actually, you know, if you can't get to yes after checking all the right boxes, there is a backstop for getting these regionally significant transmission lines done. You know, we have a, a transmission line right now in New Mexico. It's actually pretty short by most standards. I think it's 150 miles called Western Spirit. And there are hundreds of union wage IBW jobs working on completing that, that line right now. And it's facilitating the single largest single phase wind farm development ever onshore. And so you realize that a little bit of transmission really facilitates an enormous amount of other economic activity, billions and billions of dollars worth of wind for every one of these little transmission segments. And we're going to unlock that if we get these pieces in place. Senator, I have a question about it's related to climate change. Right now, you know, we talked earlier uh, to get reconciliation through very dependent on what one or two senators such as Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema will agree to. So if we had more than 50 Democratic senators, this would be a lot easier. Uh, right. And there's a lot happening on uh, voter suppression around the country, which could really impact the 2022 elections. Where what are the conversations happening in the Senate around democracy reform, protecting the right to vote? Because it doesn't seem like President Biden is prioritizing this as much as many uh, Democrats would like to see. Well, I, I think it's foundational. And my view is that there is nothing more important than the constitutional right to vote as an American citizen. It's just such a huge, it, it, it's the floor for our entire democracy. And so when you, when you weigh it against other things like the filibuster, I mean, the filibuster is a rule. Voting is a right. One of those has greater priority than the other. So whether you support getting rid of the filibuster as a broad rule, I think in the case of voting rights, we should at least be able to do a rifle shot around the filibuster to make sure that every single American citizen in whatever state they may reside can effectively exercise that right. So staying on the sort of parallel uh, political track next to next to the policy, um, I saw you said in the paper, which was just fantastic. Um, it's not your job to tell other people how you think Joe Manchin's going to vote, which is, is absolutely right. So I'm going to ask a Similarly annoying question, and I'm trying to make it less annoying so as I don't run into that uh, that same circumstance. But you, you said earlier when we were talking about transmission, uh, if the bipartisan infrastructure bill gets signed, and as you can imagine, it, it's pretty much everyone's favorite parlor game right now to try to square the Speaker Pelosi, nothing happens until everything happens with the September 27th deadline. And just for our listeners' benefit, that's an artificial deadline, but it really isn't because we still need service transportation extension if the bipartisan bill doesn't pass. So something needs to happen. How do you view the next two weeks? And then whatever happens there, how that impacts reconciliation writ large? Will the bipartisan bill get signed by the president? Are we going to be having this conversation still in December? Or how are you sort of looking at your next few months as a, as a senator in that way? 
I, I think this will resolve long before December, but I also think that, you know, the piece of this that hasn't been fully brought to bear is the, the sort of gravitas and power of the president of the United States. And when the president starts negotiating directly with those of us in the Senate and makes this his priority to land both of these things, that's a game changer. And as I said, you know, I don't, it's not my job to comment on what Joe Manchin happens to say in the press. Um, I do think that Joe Manchin very much values the, the concerns of the president of the United States, uh, irrespective of, frankly, who's in the White House at the time. Uh, I, I think that's an office that, that he respects and cares about. And so I think if we all pull together over the course of the next few weeks and get serious about the negotiations, that we have the potential to land the single biggest economic pivot point for our country in many, many decades. And it would be an incredible disservice to the next generation if we don't take that opportunity. These conversations are so much fun because I, I like to think that I have a pretty good sense of what's going on. But, but in talking to people every day, I have absolutely no idea if two weeks from now, the bipartisan infrastructure bill will start to become implemented. And that's a, that's a huge piece, frankly, we haven't talked about on this podcast, really, but people aren't talking about a lot, which is the bill has all these great authorities and then also the spending to, to carry out those authorities. But implementation is huge. The way a lot yeah. of these provisions are written, the way the Department of Energy chooses to implement them can have uh, an entirely large impact. That's so true, Shane. And, you know, Senator, you just had Secretary Granholm in New Mexico recently. How did that go? What was that like? It was really encouraging because it was, you know, we were we went up to the northwest part of New Mexico, which is one of our historical fossil fuel basins. Right. But we were talking about hydrogen and we were talking about the transition. And for the first time, you see in these communities that have really benefited and contributed to traditional energy for decades and decades and decades, they see the, the necessity of a transition now. And so we had a very serious conversation around what that might look like. What are the technologies that are going to facilitate that? Who are the innovators uh, of which we have a number in New Mexico working on the hydrogen economy? Um, and where does that fit into our overall, you know, how, how we're going to produce energy in the future? Because clearly much more of what we're doing today with combustion is going to be done with electrification. But there are these places where we're going to need clean hydrogen to be able to deal with the industrial sector, to be able to potentially do seasonal storage and, and solve other problems. So getting our hands around that. I don't think there's anybody who has that conversation in a more respectful and informed way uh, than Secretary Granholm. And, and I think all of us from very different political backgrounds in that conversation really appreciated uh, her attention to New Mexico and wanting to understand what, what my state brings to this entire conversation. And for, for our listeners out there who haven't been tracking all this you know, as closely, we all talk about the power sector a lot because it's important. But at the end of the day, to fully decarbonize the economy, you have to have end-use electrification. Otherwise, whatever you do with the power sector doesn't matter. Uh, sustainable aviation fuels in some way because there's still going to be a lot of air travel. And as the senator said, hydrogen. Heavy industry is just not at a place right now where you can fully run on electrification. So all these issues are being addressed in the legislation um, being put in front of 
the House and Senate right now. And, and that's a pretty exciting time for those of us who have been nerding out on this for a while. It, it really is an exciting time because we're going to determine so much in the course of the next few weeks that it will set, I think, our country up for how much credibility does President Biden have going into the COP at Glasgow? Because if we do a good job over the course of the next few weeks and we have a budget reconciliation heavy on climate and a bipartisan infrastructure package, then he can go to the international stage and say, we're back, we're leading, what are you going to do next? And all of that ripples across the globe. Certainly want to be respectful of your time. And we know you have a tight schedule, but what, what's on your mind? Uh, any, anything you want to throw out there for, for listeners or, or talk about before you have to go? You know, I, I'm really excited about the, the home and building electrification space right now. And so I'm really hopeful and optimistic that we can land some of those rebates and other incentives because I think people are beginning to realize that combusting fossil fuel in your home, setting aside the energy implications and the climate implications of that is really not good public health policy. And we have an opportunity to create so many blue collar panel truck kind of jobs if we handle this transition right. And if we start right now, you know, my dad was a IBW lineman growing up and you know, my whole childhood, he would come home after work with this big white panel truck or a cherry picker truck. And those are the kind of jobs that we can be facilitating with plumbers and electricians all across this country right now if we take this transition seriously. And I think for the first time, we have all of the technologies that we need. You know, 10, 15 years ago, heat pumps didn't work that good, but we've developed a lot of internal technology to that that's completely changed how efficient they are. And now they work even in cold climates like Alaska and Maine. So I think that electrification piece of the home and business environment is really, really exciting. Thanks for coming on the show, Senator. We were so lucky to have you. We're so lucky that you're in the Senate and such a champion for these issues. You're welcome anytime to come hang out with, uh, with our crew here and talk about you know clean energy and climate change. Be careful what you ask for, Brandon. <laughs> we appreciate it so much. And, and we uh, were sad. I was joking with Brandon before you came on. Maybe we need to get an earmark for Julia to get better broadband because she was supposed to be here with us today, too. And uh, Give her my best. And I'm sorry. Uh, sorry I missed her. And I'll have to come back on in the future sometime. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you both. Where were you, Julia, for that conversation? Technical difficulties. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I wanted to see how your journalistic skills, uh, you know, what I On taught the you. On sidelines, yeah. when we needed you. <laughs> I, I was proud to see my little birds fly. <laughs> like real journalists out there. You got, we got you press passes a couple of years ago. And, uh, I'm I mean, hey, so, Shane know. and I... <laughs> I have never been journalists, don't even claim to be. And two, we're like such fanboys of Martin Heinrich. So it was very hard to like be objective in that interview because I was like, you know, fawning over it. I love what you do. Yeah. Did you get an autograph? I would love his autograph. Maybe we can work on that. Uh, That's amazing. I thought you guys did a great job in the interview. I mean, what were your guys' takeaways, putting your fanboydom aside? What was your gut feeling on where things stand after hearing directly from a lawmaker? Brandon? I mean, you know, Shane and I have been having this debate over whether this thing is going to happen and when. And I feel like 
you know, what we're hearing from Senator Heinrich and what we heard from, you know, Shane and I were with Senator Padilla over the weekend. We're hearing that they're cautiously optimistic that this could get done sometime in October. So that seems to track with what I think is going to happen, but it's very unpredictable. Say it does happen, Brandon. Will Democrats do a good job of publicizing it? I think that would be my question. It's even if they get all these wins, will it become like the Recovery Act where people won't even really know what was attributed to the Obama administration and, and what just sort of felt like the weather to them? You know, uh, we can talk about that for a future date, but I'd be curious to play that out a little further. I think a lot of the Biden folks who served in the Obama administration with me are trying to learn the hard lessons from when we did this the last time. And I think those lessons are one, that money has to move quickly and efficiently without corruption. We did a good job of that in the Recovery Act. But to your point, Julia, you know, did we get the political benefits of that? Well, the midterms would suggest no, because we lost badly. So not only does that money have to move, get to the right places, uh, have the impact that the policies are designed to have, but we also need to get that political benefit by making sure people know I mean, on reconciliation, there's zero Republican votes. Zero. I mean, right now, people, you know, over the last several months, people have been getting checks, you know, on, on child care during a tough time, you know, with the pandemic, and no Republicans voted for that. I don't know if we're doing enough job, a good enough job to message that Democrats are delivering for people. And, you know, the Republicans stepped up in some ways on the bipartisan bill, uh, but they're not doing everything that we need to do. Shane, close us out on this episode. Where do you sit yeah. today? My, my, you know, whenever I talk to Senator Heinrich, I'm optimistic. I've had the opportunity to work with him in the past and he's just a get shit done kind of guy. So every, you know, everything about his being is always like pushing forward, trying to, you know, make the difficult things happen, trying to rally support, trying to do all the things that need to be done. I don't even say this as, as a partisan, you know, Democrat or Republican. If we had 50, 60, 70, 80 senators like him, we wouldn't be having these conversations because we'd have achieved a lot of our primary objectives. So Yes, I'm very optimistic after talking to him. I just don't know how confident I am that there's, you know, 49, 50, 60 more of him. But I hope that there are. And I hope that, you know, the work that he's doing and others like him help, you know, sort of move some of these important priorities across the finish line. All right. Well, we'll leave it there on this episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, thanks also to Canary Media for helping us distribute these uh, episodes. Also to the USC Schwarzenegger Institute for their ongoing support. You can listen and subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and other locations. Look for us on Twitter at P-O-L-I underscore climate. Thanks so much for listening and spending your time with us. We'll be back again in a couple weeks.